right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here uh, had a chance to chat with Patrick Cantlay on Friday of last week. Uh, first time he's been on the podcast, somebody we've wanted to have on for quite some time. I hope he comes back on. I feel like we could do three or four of these a year. He's He speaks so well on a number of different topics. We really just kind of scratched the surface. We didn't, even, we didn't even talk about either of his two PGA Tour wins just because we got in really deep on his injury history and kind of what his what his path to uh, to you know, success on the PGA Tour and, and the world golf scene has looked like. So uh, excited for you guys to get to that. We have Strapped rolling on uh, episode two of the Southern California series uh, featuring Max Homa. Max Homa is going to make his debut in episode two, which comes out is premiering on Tuesday, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern. I promise we are continuing to pump out the content, but we are going to run out of it. We are going to empty the coffers at some point. And if you're looking for more, I'm, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around what I watched in the uh, Callaway Wedgication video that showed Wesley Bryan how, showing how to hit like a low spinner around the green and how he does it with an open club face. I know I, I've seen stuff like in, in, you know, about Tiger Woods seeing like draw chips, and I just don't understand how any of this stuff works. And it makes me, it's kind of, uh, it's a weird Pandora's box to open. And I'm wondering if I want to do it, but you can see it for yourself on the Callaway YouTube channel how some of these guys hit golf shots. And uh, while you're there, you might enjoy some of their latest video podcasts. They had Will Gordon and Kevin Kisner on their show lately. And for those equipment geeks, you might want to watch their fitting room episode with the folks from TXG, where they talk about how the uh, Maverick driver dominated the TXG driver bracket challenge. And as well, they got a mini documentary coming out this week about UNLV standout Shintero Ban, how the COVID-19 situation is wreaking havoc on his efforts to make it to the tour. So all this is available at the Callaway Golf YouTube channel. You can, of course, follow Callaway Golf on Twitter and Instagram for the latest on equipment, plus entertaining and educational golf content. Without any further delay, here is our interview with Patrick Cantlay. What do you, how you been spending your time? What have you been up to? And uh, how sharp is the game in this, in this time period? Yeah, well, I've just been in uh, Jupiter, hanging out uh, at home pretty much uh, all day. Uh, fortunately, I finished a gym here um, a few months ago, so I've just been working out, um, you know, six days a week in the morning. And other than that, not a lot, just reading and hanging out. The game is not particularly sharp right now. I haven't hit balls. I haven't actually really played since uh, players on Thursday, so... I am going to wait till we get like a confirmed tournament out and then I'll probably practice about a month before that. And so hopefully this season can start, you know, middle of June, like they uh, came out a couple of days ago and stuff. Yeah. Are you banking on that actually coming to fruition when you saw, when you saw middle of June, what was your, uh, your initial reaction? Well, I think the, the, the best thing to do would be just to prepare as if that is uh, what's going to happen, but know that it's possible that it won't. Um, I, Obviously, as well as a bunch of other people, hope that it that it does come to fruition. But if anything, I've learned about this over the last you know month or so is that it's very uncertain, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if if uh, something happened and it got more tournaments got canceled or the start date got pushed back farther. 
How long have you have you been in Jupiter, and was that kind of a an immediate thing that you knew as soon as you were turning pro? You were uh, take us to you, you grew up in Southern California, and uh, can you explain to us why why Jupiter becomes such a haven for people? Sure. So yeah, I grew up uh, near Long Beach in Los Alamitos in California, and uh, went to UCLA for a couple of years, and then I lived in Long Beach for like a year uh, a year or so uh, when I first turned pro, and then I moved to Jupiter. Actually, after I healed the stress fracture in my back for the first time, like in 14, but I re-injured myself maybe four or five months into moving to Jupiter the first time. And so then after that, I moved back to California until I want to say 17 or 17 or 18, I think 18, uh, start of 18, I moved back to Jupiter. I like it here. Uh, it's a lot easier for travel. Uh, there's a lot of events that are on the East Coast. And when we do travel back to the West Coast, it's nicer at the beginning of the week to gain the hours when you travel, opposed to when you're in, on the West Coast and you have to go to the East Coast. If you travel on, let's say, a Monday for a tournament, you lose the entire Monday. Not to mention taxes are much better and uh, the advantage of uh, learning Bermuda grass or getting really comfortable on Bermuda grass, which in California, uh, I didn't really grow up on. Oh, that's a, that's a lot of interesting things. I never thought about the, uh, the West coast to East coast. I always say it's no matter what the distance, whenever you're traveling East, it always makes it, makes it difficult, especially if you're going three to, at least three time zones, uh, West to East. So what you mentioned Bermuda there, how, how much of a learning curve is something like learning a new grass type? When did you learn Bermuda or, or what, uh, what explain like people that are from California, what their relationship is like with that kind of grass? Well, I think especially younger, being younger and playing junior golf, you don't really have a, you don't really have a good idea of like when you're changing grasses, it just is grass, right? Right. Cause you're not, you're not sophisticated enough in what you're doing until you get maybe to about high school when you start realizing that there are different types of grasses and that can dictate the technique you use. So growing up in California, you know, we have Kikuya grass out there and that's probably the one native grass we have there that they don't have in the rest of the country. So I feel really comfortable on that. Um, but Bermuda grass, I probably got introduced to it middle of high school when I first started traveling for, for tournaments, uh, out of state, I was probably 15 or so. And definitely there's a initial shock factor when you get an into the grain Bermuda chip shot, because your technique has to completely change and you have to hit a lot more golf ball first. I like to get more shaft lean and really clip the ball first. But the first time you see it, <laughs> the tendency is to just chunk it about a foot in front of you. And that's really startling when you're just starting to get to the age where you're uh, used to hitting chips really well all the time, you know? Yeah, that's what it, I'm interested just to hear kind of what your considerations or a pro's considerations are like. Because uh, I, I know for like a lot of people from the north, like amateur golfers, when they go travel south, they just will immediately say, like, I hate Bermuda. I hate Bermuda. And uh, I was just curious if you had a, if it was if it's something you felt like you needed to learn and how well that skill plays on the, on the PGA tour for just for the listeners sake, how often are you guys playing on Bermuda grass? And is it something that you felt like you definitely needed to have that skill to be competitive out there? We play on Bermuda grass a lot, all of the Florida swing. And there's actually a lot of golf courses, I think that are going to some of these new strains of Bermuda because they're healthier for year round with less headache as far as the maintenance or agronomy goes. 
for example, even my golf club that I grew up at uh, in Long Beach, Virginia Country Club, has gone to Bermuda in the last uh, three or four years. They uh, used to overseed with rye, uh, but then in like August, September, when it would start to get hot, the rye would basically burn up and they had to keep the golf course really wet to try and hold on to the rye grass. So instead of having a bad golf course, August, September, they decided to go to Bermuda and the golf course is way healthier year round and the surface is much better, but it misses that green look. (laughs) Um, But playing on tour, being able to play all the different types of grasses, whether it's Bermuda or Kukuya, rye grass, or sometimes we play on zoysia. Um, And then even if you want to get even more particular, there's even different strains of each like bluegrass is similar to rye, but it's not exactly the same. We travel so often and we play so many different places in so many different climates that we get used to playing in all those grasses and we almost change our technique to suit the grasses and the lies shot to shot, week to week without thinking about it. It's almost secondhand. It's, it's almost like natural now, but at the start it is, it is definitely on the forefront of your mind that, oh, I'm on Bermuda and it's into the grain. I need to shaft lean more. I need to make sure I put the ball maybe a little farther back in my stance and catch ball first, which is going to make it come out lower. And you have to get used to seeing and computing the shots that way. That's interesting. I think a lot of listeners at home and viewers on TV, when they watch TV, they hear the broadcasters talk about different grass types, but not a ton of them on the considerations of the different shots you need. Before we get kind of into the nuts and bolts of, uh, of your back injury and, and the time you spent away from the game, on the, a somewhat more lighthearted note, do, does this quarantine period harken back at all to the considerable time you spent away from the game in your early 20s? Have you, have you learned any, uh, any skills for passing time in that period that are, that are paying off uh, in this time period? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's similar, except the only, you know obviously the biggest difference was it got to a point before where I was curious how it would be if I were able to get back. And, you know, some days there was a question, will I ever even be able to get back to play? It's a lot easier to have time off when that's not a big question looming in your head every day. But uh, I noticed that it is difficult to find, uh, like, meaning or motivation throughout the day. And I feel when I have a bunch of time off, I feel more accomplished if I'm reading. Uh, It feels like I can absorb information and, and, and learn a little more and broaden my horizons a little bit. So I try and, uh, read some every day and some days I'm more motivated than others and I get farther along in my book than others. But, um, I definitely feel like I at least did a little something for self-improvement if I can, uh, um, knock out some pages every day. Yeah. I would imagine this is, uh, a, a lot, uh, a lot different in a lot of ways to, to what you went through back Back in, and I want to kind of go through the timeline before I start saying too many dates here. But I think you know, for a lot of hardcore golf fans, they're familiar with your amateur career and we're ready for your arrival in the professional scene uh, and your injury. I, I'm not saying you became the forgotten man, but for a lot of casual fans that maybe weren't as tuned in for you yet, they probably weren't following your progress as closely as maybe as some people that were, you know, much more familiar with your amateur career. So. Uh, why don't we kind of go back into some of your amateur career and it's, it's always hard for me to get people to brag about themselves, but you spent two years at UCLA 
play before turning pro. Can you kind of set the scene for the success you had there and uh, in your amateur career and what made you decide to turn pro? Let's see. Uh, well, I picked UCLA. Um, I got some really good advice from my coach, Jamie Mulligan, um, who has taught me since I was nine and uh, continues to be my swing coach today. Um, and he basically said, you should go to all the schools that you're visiting. This is when I was in high school and imagine where you would feel like you would like to live for a couple of years, uh, which I thought was really good advice and different from a lot of advice that I got from others. Um, as far as, you know, people wanted to say, which coach do you like or which program do you like or where do they play their golf, etc." So, uh, once I got to UCLA, uh, I realized that it would be a really cool place to live. And so I enjoyed my two years that I had there and going there in high school, uh, definitely when I committed. And even when I was there as a freshman, I really believed that I'd be there for four years and I'd get a degree. It didn't really enter my mind as a thought that I would turn pro early. After my freshman year, maybe towards the end of my freshman year, that sense started to change a little bit. And then it really started to change in that summer when I played well in a lot of professional events, the summer after my freshman year of college. And I realized that the guys on tour are not as good as I thought they were compared to me and that I can play out on tour. It's just a matter of when I decide I want to play out on tour, turn pro. And that was really eye opening. And I don't think I would have, I was very fortunate to have had the experiences to play in those three or four PJ tour events that summer. And it gave me a lot of confidence, whether it was, you know, whether my assessment was real or not, like it was really the case that I could play with those guys, or I was just very naive and I, and, and I was a young kid with lots of confidence and I felt like I could either way. Um, it gave me a lot of confidence and I felt very self-assured that I could make it out on tour when I turned pro. And so I stayed one more year and then decided it was, the best opportunity for me to turn pro. I'd get seven sponsors exemptions into tour events and I was able to get some sponsors together. And, uh, I felt like if it's what I wanted to do, uh, for a career now was a good a time as any. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. I think, uh, one, you're being a bit modest by saying you had success on the PGA tour that year. I was pulling it up and you made five starts on the tour that year as an amateur and you made at four top 25s, I believe, including a 60 at the travelers. Um, but I'm curious, you said that the guys on tour weren't as good as you thought they were. What did you, I guess, what was your impression of what they were before you got there and what changed? What did you see that changed, uh, kind of how you visioned the top level of golf? Well, I think there's a couple things that were at play there. Uh, one of the things being when you watch golf on TV, uh, you're watching the guys in the lead and you're watching Tiger and you're watching Phil and you're watching the greats of the game. And when you qualify for the U.S. Open uh, as a 19-year-old and they pair you with who you're paired with, you go out last in the wave and you're not playing with Tiger and you're not playing under the scrutiny of cameras everywhere. And the guys at the bottom level of the PGA Tour are not on the same level as the greats of the game. And so I grew up imagining everyone striping it and hitting it, you know, hitting it really, really far and hitting it really, really high and hitting it way better than the guys in college. And that's just 
not really the case for the majority of PGA Tour players. The majority of PGA Tour players are just masters at getting the ball in the hole and positioning their golf ball around and making a good score, getting up and down a lot, getting the easy ones up and down almost every time and getting a few up and down that, you know, a college player would never get up and down. And so playing with some of the guys that summer that I was, you know, paired with, I have, I think my expectation was so high for how they would hit the golf ball and how they would strategize around the golf course that it was just lower than my expectation because growing up, you watch all that amazing golf and you watch the greats of the game and you just imagine that being so far away from where you are. And a lot of development happens in your body and your mind between ages 15 and 19 or 15 and 20. And I had made a lot of progress between 15, 15 and 20. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Raycon. You guys have heard me talk about this. I got a lot of messages after we mentioned them the last time on the podcast. R-A-Y-C-O-N, that's Raycon. Everyone needs a pair of wireless headphones, whether you're working from home, if you're working on your fitness, catching up on podcasts. We need you to have some wireless earbuds because we need people still listening to podcasts during this time period where people don't have commutes. But you don't need to be dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair. You just have to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. They start about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound just as good as the other top audio brands you know. And their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, best ones yet. Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a compact design. Gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. I can't even tell you the last time I charged mine. I keep mine by my bed. I'm usually watching videos or something before I go to bed. Fiance doesn't even hear anything that goes on. She can't even tell that they're in. So they're comfortable perfect for conference calls or for binging podcasts. So uh, unlike the other ones, they're stylish and discreet. No dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. And uh, again, we were so excited to find out that this was company was co-founded by Ray J. And a lot of different celebrities are, they're obsessed with their Raycons as well. So pick up a pair, see what the hype's about. Now is the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash no laying up. That's buyraycon.com slash no laying up. Again, for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash no laying up. Let's get back to Patrick Cantley. How would you describe your game? I know people listening to this are familiar and have watched you on television. I'm sure that much smaller percentage have gone out and followed you at tour events. But I spend at least a decent amount of time trying to piece together what makes the top players in the world the top players, where they're gaining a true advantage over other top players in the world. The answer is often rooted in distance and also, I think, in strokes gained approach with iron play. But as someone that you, you're not a bomber, you hit it far, but you're not DJ type length. But how would you describe where you gain an advantage over a run of the mill or average tour pro? I think it's hard to gain consistently unless it's ball striking which I think was not really the, wasn't the consensus before shots gained. So I think that has a large majority to do with it. And then also I'm fairly consistent, not only in play, but I'm consistent in off the golf course things as well and preparation for tournaments. So I'm a firm believer that basically by the time you get to the first tee on Thursday, it's almost entirely already decided how you're going to play based on the work that you've done leading up to it and all your experiences leading up to it. You don't flip a switch on Thursday on the first tee and go, ah, well, 
now I'm going to turn it on. So I think my preparation and the way I go about preparing for tournaments is probably my biggest asset and my ability to be consistent in getting my work done and staying to a, to a game plan or a strategy for getting ready for an event is, uh, is a big part of me being able to perform consistently on tour. Well, coming out as you're turning pro coming out of college and you know, you had mentioned you, you hadn't planned on turning pro that quickly, at least when you started college. So what was the hype level like? I mean, were you starting to feel any sort of outside pressure? The expectations for you, I think changed with the success you had, uh, both in amateur events and as an amateur in pro events, did that have any kind of material effect on you? Definitely. Definitely my sophomore year going back to playing college golf was a letdown after playing so many uh, PGA Tour events. Right. And uh, that's, I think that's just, that's just human nature. You play in some huge events and that becomes exciting and the level of play is so much higher that you kind of raise your play uh, or raise your focus level to – to to compete on that level and going back to college events wasn't just wasn't as exciting as it was the previous year and not only that I realized that I could play at the PGA Tour level and that I really enjoyed it and I realized that it is exactly what I want to do and so knowing all that and having had some success out there I just wanted to go out and do that as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. And so my sophomore year of college was a little like, uh, like I really wanted, I really wanted to be playing out there professionally, but I don't think I was quite ready right after my freshman summer to kind of turn pro. So I think it actually worked out well. And I was able to play the masters, um, as an amateur, uh, that sophomore year. And so I think it all worked out for the best. Um, but definitely by the time June rolled around, uh, June of, uh, 2012, I was pumped to go out and play and, and I was excited to, uh, compete on the highest level. So take us through the timeline then of, of your injury, your back injury. I want to know if you, did you have any back problems in your life, in your career, leading up to that point and what triggered, was there a specific incident that just triggered an injury and, and kind of how that all played out? I don't think I was particularly well informed about the body and what you could do for the body growing up as far as feeling good. And I kind of had it in my brain that, yeah, my back might be a little stiff or it might be, you know, a little sore, but that's normal. And there's nothing that's really the matter. You just kind of, you know, fight through it and maybe I won't hit as many balls today, but you know, tomorrow it'll feel better. And I think that was a a very uninformed young person's approach to it. And so thinking back on it, there were some warning signs as far as my back goes, but at the time I wasn't clicked in enough to realize that they were warning signs. I just figured, you know, I'm playing golf and hitting a lot of golf balls. Yeah. Every once in a while your back's going to be a little sore. Um, and my idea was to kind of just manage it as best I could and play through it. Um, so when I actually did have the injury in 13, I believe at a colonial, uh, warming up on the range, it was so much 
it was such a different pain than what I'd realized uh, or what I had dealt with before at all. I mean, before it was just kind of sore tight. This was actually really, really painful. But I was still so naive and young. I figured, oh, you know, I'll be able to play next week. You know, in the U.S. Open qualifier on Monday, I'll be able to go play those 36 holes. And I flew to Washington, D.C., and I figured, you know, the next Monday I'd be I'd be good to go. You know, it's just I'll feel better soon. It's, it's just it's just some muscles in there. And it took me a while before I found a doctor who actually identified that it was a stress fracture. And I actually had a broken bone opposed to just muscle weakness or soreness or a strained ligament or something. And so how you, you get the diagnosis, you have a broken bone. What is, what's next? What, where do you go? Is it immediately like, I know I'm on the shelf for quite some time because it basically, from what I gather, it was a kind of almost a start and stop at least during this time period of thinking you were kind of close to being back and then realizing that things were much more serious. That's right. So for a stress fracture, you need to rest. Um, and the doctor basically described it as, you know, I'm like, how long do I need to rest? And he's like, well, I can heal as soon as six weeks and it can take up to a year to heal. And that's really, really hard to hear when you're uh, just starting and you want to play all the time. Uh, that was that was really difficult to swallow, especially the unknown of, well, it could be six weeks or it could be a year. I mean, that's, that's a big discrepancy in time. Um, and when I did get hurt at Colonial, I think at the time I was leading or close to the lead of the web.com money list. So I had felt like I had already wrapped up a tour card, you know, for the following season, um, following a win in Columbia. And so I was in a, I was in a difficult spot because I didn't know how long it would take to heal, but obviously I wanted it to heal quicker than it probably was going to. And I wanted to make sure I at least stayed in the top 25 on the web.com money list. And I, thought I might be able to do it without playing any events the rest of the season. Um, so I watched it really closely. And um, I think with, you know, three weeks left or three tournaments left, I went to the doctor again and uh, asked him, you know, how much damage could I do if I play? And, you know, what are the long-term effects? And what, what's your opinion? Here's my situation. You know, I may, I, if I could make a cut or two, I'm probably going to get my tour card for next year. If I don't make any cuts, I may not have a tour card next year. And so I talked with him and he basically said, listen, I don't think you're going to do any long-term damage. It's not like that. It's not a disc problem. I don't, you can't make it worse if, if it's not crazy, you know, if you can tolerate the pain to play, he's like, I don't think it's going to long-term affect your, your back health. It may delay your healing slightly, but it's not going to be anything that, you can't necessarily make it worse. The damage is already done. So uh, I decided to play the last two web.com regular season events. And I went out the first week and missed the cut. And I was not swinging 100%. And I was trying to guard around my back. And uh, I went and played the last event in Omaha of the regular season. And I was like number 24 on the money list or something. And I needed to basically make a cut, just make any type of money to hold my top 25 position. And I came to the 36 hole on Friday on the cut line and I drove it in the rough and didn't get up and down. 
and missed the cut by a shot and ended up falling to like 26 on the money list. Hmm. And so that was a real low. And uh, I was in lots of pain, uh, manageable, but in pain. And uh, I went back to uh, the hotel room and I was talking with uh, my buddy Chris, who was caddying for me at the time. And I asked him what he thought. And he goes, you know, you played these last two weeks. You almost made the cut this week uh, with, a, you know, obviously in pain and having not really played at all because I had been out for, you know, four months or whatever before these events started. And he goes, the web.com, I think it was the first year of the new web.com finals. He goes, come on, like, I know you can do it. Like, let's go play next week uh, in the web finals in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, we went to Fort Wayne early, played a practice round. I probably took like Monday off or something. And then I basically just decided, however much it hurts, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't hurt. And I'm going to do my best to block out all the pain entirely. And it actually worked. I felt way better than I did the last couple of weeks just by adopting that mindset and swinging like normal at full strength and everything. And I played well that week. Um, I missed a short putt on the last hole to force a playoff. And that ended up getting me my tour card. And then I shut it down for you know six months after that to heal my backup. And so... How okay? So after this, you know, you're, you're shutting it back down for a while. Are you seeing progress though? Like with all the downtime away from the game, I'm sure you're doing tons of rehab. What does the rehab look like, and what is the actual progress? Because this is not the last time that this would. Uh, this, you're, you're you don't know this at the time, but you're a long ways from getting past this. That's right. So I worked with a PT in LA uh, who's become a good friend and friend of mine. His name's John Meyer. And we worked uh, all the time, like I think three, four days a week at that time doing physical therapy to get back to playing. And I was seeing progress um, basically every couple of weeks, marked progress. You know, I, my, I felt stronger and better and my back felt better. And the first time around, it was actually pretty straightforward to what the doctor said. Rest and rehab and, you know, somewhere between six weeks and a year. And, uh, you know, it's the rehabs as fast as you can go without making your symptoms in your back worse. And, uh, you know, I, I started to feel better. And after about six months, I felt pretty darn good. You know, I didn't really have any pain in my back when I practiced and I felt like I was actually hitting it a little farther and, and everything was going really well. Uh, and I started to play, I think my first event back at this point, I had my tour card, but I was on a medical and hadn't played any events. And I came back at, I think, Byron Nelson in, in middle of May and felt good. Um, I was really excited to kind of like start uh, out on tour as a rookie and uh, my back felt good and everything. I played Byron Nelson and I had a couple weeks off. I don't think I was like into any of those events. And then I came back and played some events in the summer and, you know, got my legs under me and made a couple cuts and then I went to John Deere to play and my back was, I like woke up on Tuesday that week and my back was just out of nowhere. Pain, pain was back. Like something was out of whack and, and the, the pain was back or part of the pain was back. And I warmed up to play on Thursday of John Deere and the pain was, was not good and I couldn't play and I withdrew. And then that kind of, that was really 
uh, I started like a, a really bad cycle where I really wanted to play and I would feel good for, uh, you know, I'd feel good leading up into the tournament. But if I started to play too often, it would just slowly get worse and get to the point where I couldn't play. And then I had that time where I'd try and play an event. Um, and then I would not be able to play event for a couple months and then I'd try and play again. Um, and that was really hard. And I was just trying to, I was trying to manage the pain and do as best I could. But occasionally there were just days where my back was in so much pain that I just couldn't swing the golf club. Yeah, and it's. Do you? Is it still the a fracture at this point that's that's driving you? That's causing all this, all these issues, or is it has it evolved into other issues? And I mean, what what are you? I guess also, do you regret anything that happened during this time period? Right. I mean, I I can hear in your voice how anxious you are and, and hungry you are to get back out in the golf course. But was that holding you back at all? I mean, it seems like you're doing everything you can from a PT standpoint, but. Were you coming back too soon? Is that what is that what was driving? And then this next layoff is what is ends up being the big one. Well, I still don't think I was. How do I explain it? I think I know I've gone back to the doctor, and the doctor said, "Listen, your stress fracture is healed on on the scan." And uh, I think what your body does after a stress fracture, it lays it lays down a, it doesn't necessarily totally repair the bone. From what I was told, it lays down kind of like a gelatinous material where the stress fracture was, so you don't re- so you don't re-break that area. Um, but I was still putting lots of stress on that area, mm-hmm. and it was painful. And I don't know if it was that something was still wrong, and I needed to rest it for longer time, or I had such a the way that your body gets input for pain is related to like pain memory almost like you you can sometimes associate a certain action to being painful and so i don't know if that was also playing a certain component involved where my body just would almost like protect me from re-injuring by getting a pain response when i would hit golf balls even if they were structurally even if the problem structurally was fixed I was still experiencing lots of pain and I don't think anybody on my team or any of the people that I saw at the time can really identify exactly what was giving me pain. I just know that when I went to go hit golf balls, I was uh, occasionally would be under so much pain. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't swing. Um, and it ended up being a long layoff, basically now, basically like close to a year of no golf, no putting, no hitting balls, no chipping, and just physical therapy uh, that eventually got me to a place where I could come back and play. Well, what's what's that time like? Because I know you're, you're, you're away from PGA Tour professional golf for all of 2015 and all of 2016. And as you just said there, you're, you're going a year without touching a club. So what do you, what's that time period like in this time period, some of your peers are, you know, winning on the PGA tour. And I, I just can't imagine how, like how hard that was to go through both from a pain perspective and just, uh, somewhat of an antsy perspective. So what did you do to pass the time and what was that like? Yeah, it was a time when JT and Jordan, especially, especially Jordan was playing a lot of really, really, really high level golf and winning lots of tournaments. And so growing up with those guys playing junior golf and college golf with them, 
um, and feeling like I turned pro before them and, and theoretically should be ahead of them, you know, that was difficult to watch, but at the same time, really inspiring because, you know, these are guys that I know I can compete with and they're out there winning a lot. So that was like, you know, if I can get back to playing, you know, I'll be in a good spot. These are guys that I, I, I know really well and I, I know how good they are, but I can, I can play with them. Um, so it was kind of, you know, it was, it was good and bad seeing that. Um, but there, I mean, there's just so much, so much downtime. I did physical therapy every day and, uh, I read a lot, watched probably way too much TV and, uh, there's just, there's just not, not a lot to do. I tried to stay busy, but, um, my head was, you know, always looking towards, always looking towards the future. When am I going to get back? How does my back feel? Am I doing the right thing for my back? Do you think I'm ready to go? Uh, how long should I take off? You know, what should I do when I get back, uh, to start to hit balls? Is it going to hurt when I come back to hit balls? Um, you know, I, I, so, uh, a couple days a week, I went up to Virginia country club and I'd watch, uh, John Mallinger hit balls, um, with Jamie. And then I'd play cards with some of the members there, uh, in the evening. Um, and those were like the most exciting days, you know, during, during that, that year off. Cause they're just, I wasn't doing a lot. And, and my mind was, uh, was just waiting for the future to happen. Well, take us to, uh, what's the, what's the age demographic of the guys you're playing cards with and what's your, uh, what's your game of choice? I've heard some fun stories about that. Yeah, we played gin rummy uh, a couple of days a week, like on Wednesdays and Fridays. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some guys, you know, in their thirties and forties, and then there's guys in their seventies uh, and eighties. Um, they, they, you know, uh, it's a wide range and a, and a bunch of really good guys and guys to this day that, you know, I talk to a lot, uh, talk to weekly and, and are, are some of my best friends. Do you feel like skipping ahead? Do you feel like you're all the way back? Like, do you feel you are currently like the best golfer you've been, or do you feel like anything was lost in this whole injury and time period. You've won twice on the PGA Tour since you've come back, but I'm just curious as to where where you feel like you currently stand versus how you felt uh, before you got injured. Sure. Well, I think there's a lost time component as far as you know. There's basically three years there where I was in the prime age to play golf on tour and, and wasn't able to play on tour. And I think obviously my my path or my, uh, who I am as a person is different having gone through that than it would have been if I didn't go through that. And I had just playing, been playing on tour all those years. But if there were, if there are any negatives that happen from it, there's a bunch of positives as well. And I feel like I'm very grateful for being able to play out on tour and I've done a lot of hard work, uh, to get back out playing on tour. So I appreciate it a lot. I think anytime anybody is able to overcome something that was really difficult, uh, they're better for it. And, and they can take some of those experiences from those trials and tribulations and, and really have that help them whenever other bad things or, or difficult times come ahead. You know, I've gone through some tough times, but I'm sure it won't be the last time and I'll be able to reflect back and kind of pull from those experiences and hopefully it helps me down the road. 
And I'm sure this is a topic that, you know, you've been asked about a lot, but also during this time period, you mentioned your friend, Chris Roth, who was your caddy. What, this was in 2016. Can you, uh, he died tragically and you were there for it. Is that kind of more what you're referring to as well when you say some of the things that you've been through? I mean, in, in looking at all this, it sounds like you're, you, if somebody didn't know who you were, it'd be like, all right, this guy's got to be like 45 with all the things he's been through. You're 28 years old, and you went through an awful lot in a short period of time. Uh, I thought your perspective on it in the first-person Golf Digest article you wrote was, was extremely interesting, and I'm wondering if you could touch on some of that. Sure. Well, it came at a really, I mean, I don't want to sound overly selfish here, but it came at a really bad time as well. Um, you know, I had just been told by the doctor, you got to take a year off. This was like in January. And then unfortunately the accident happened in February. And so I was already extremely low and this just blew whatever lows I was feeling completely out of the water. And I was at a, a different low that I didn't even know really existed. That really made one of the darkest times of my life even darker. And I just, I really, it felt like, it felt like I didn't, it felt like everything was totally worthless and meaningless because it was, it was just such a tragic point in my life where it felt like everything was a complete nightmare, almost to the point where it isn't real. And so it was hard to experience that and accept it and then try and grow from it or try and, and like build yourself out of it. Um, and ultimately it just took time, not only for my back, but, uh, also to kind of accept and get to a place where Chris's death doesn't actively disrupt my daily life and my ability to connect with other people. I'm always going to carry it with me and it's always going to be a defining moment in my life. Um, and that is how it should be. He was a defining, uh, character, a defining friend in my life. Um, and he meant a lot to me, you know, it's just, it was, it was, it was really hard. And the, the, I'm still learning lessons, lessons from it. I'm still, uh, you know, dealing with it, I think, but as time goes on, it becomes, time is the greatest healer. It just, it becomes less and less of a disruptor in my life. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's been, it's, it's been difficult, but it definitely has made me who I am today. Well, that is more than enough time on uh, on a on a very difficult time period in your life because it it does end up uh, things end up changing for you um, here in the fall of seventeen. You, so you come back very quickly in seventeen, and you are under a I'd say a decent amount of pressure to get your car just because it's there's a there's a lot of uncertainty. I, I, well, let me just ask that: was there uncertainty in kind of what you, the status of your game when you come back in seventeen, having been away for so long? You've got how many starts to get your card based on your medical. You take care of it rather quickly, but how confident were you that that, that would happen? Well, I'd say the practical side of my brain knew that I was good enough to still play out on tour. I, uh, you know, took a while to come back, and I was playing some rounds at home, uh, pain free or pretty close to pain free, and played really well. I had shot some low rounds at Virginia and some low rounds at Shady Canyon and Irvine. 
And um, so I knew practically that my game was still really good. Um, but there is that little tiny voice, you know, when you get out there on Thursday, I came back at Pella Beach, you know, there's a little tiny voice on Thursday that says, you know, are you going to shoot 80? You haven't played a tournament in three years. You know, it's very small, but it's definitely there. Um, and fortunately, you know, I, <laughs> I got off to a good start. I like birdied the first hole and played pretty good that day. And after that day, you know, just kind of never looked back and that voice, you know, went away pretty quickly. And, um, I was able to play well and the practical side of my brain kind of won, won the day. And I was able to play well and played really well that first year back, despite having not played any tournament golf for three or so years. And just for people to set the scene here for as well, the back injury, we've talked in great, great detail about that, but it's not over. So take us through what you go through on a week-to-week basis still to this day on the PGA Tour to prepare your body for a day of practice, an actual round, what time you got to get to the course, uh, how your tee time category, you know, how all that works together. Uh, So take us there. When I first came back, uh, yeah, I should say when I, before I got hurt, I would just kind of cruise to the golf course about an hour before my time and uh, go straight to the range and just warm up a little bit and play. Since having the back injury, I've realized how important it is to be to get your body warmed up and get your body ready to play and ready for activity every day, even if that's practice. So every day I go through uh, at least a warm up in the gym before, and that's probably at least a couple hours before. And then for tournament days, um, I get there three hours before and start to work with my physical therapist three hours before, and then I go over to the gym. You know, I find that actually it's a good routine to get my body and mind ready to go. So by the time I'm on the first tee, I am totally ready. And that first, uh, there's no like lag time. There's no like, well, I'm just getting the day started and, you know, I'll be ready on the third or fourth hole. I'm totally there and present on the first tee even if it's a seven o'clock tea time, because, you know, I've been starting my morning routine at, you know, three hours before, so four o'clock that morning. And for the most part, it doesn't matter if I tee off at seven. If I tee off at seven, I probably will start it. You know, I'll probably try and edge it closer to two and a half, but I'm still, um, you know, getting started well before, uh, well before my tea time for the day. God, I had no idea. That's <laughs> just, I, I, do you, are you alone there when you're getting, when you're there that early uh, and when you have one of the earlier tee times, is there anybody else that beats you there? Yeah, there's plenty of days where I'm the first one to the course or the night before I got asked the locker room attendant to make sure the locker room's open at, at you know, before five o'clock so we can get our work started. Hmm, golly. Well, I don't want to get too far into this, and uh, there's a lot from uh, from Melbourne I want to ask you about. So, if we can completely uh, completely change topics here, but uh, just your first team event uh, professionally uh, for the U.S. team, which is kind of seems shocking. Take us to Royal Melbourne. I mean, how real just to start off the week? How crazy was it? You know, flying from the Bahamas. I I, I should have done this research. I assume you were on the the, whole, the team plane that all went down together. Take us to what that travel time was like, what the jet lag is like, and just how you kicked off the week. Yeah, so we were actually, I think all 12 of us, uh, including the captains, or maybe Fred got to Melbourne early, uh, but all the players were on that that charter flight, and it was basically a full 24 hours in the air. Um, it took us a long time to get there. I don't know if it was quite that long. I can't remember exactly, but it was close to that. And uh, it was 
by far the longest flight I'd ever taken. And I think there was a lot of talk about it, but it was a huge factor for the week as far as uh, I know I was extremely tired all week. Uh, and it was probably one of the most tired weeks I've ever had. Uh, and, you know, I didn't really know the golf course. I definitely didn't know the golf course as well as I would have wanted to um, before the week started simply from a, you know, not having played the golf course enough because we got there on Monday, but we didn't have enough time to play any golf on Monday. The week was, the week was, I was really excited for the week. You know, you grow up thinking about what it would be like to play on some of these team events. You know, it's just an exciting week. It's so much different than what we do all the other weeks because you're playing not only for yourself, but for your country and you're playing for your captain and you're playing for the rest of your teammates. So there's a, there's a different type of importance um, that you feel throughout the week, like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. And uh, because we do it so very little in golf, it's very exciting. Um, all those all those components that I just listed together kind of fueling you to play well. I swear it feels like I've watched you and Xander as teammates, you know, in Ryder Cups and President's Cups for like the last five years. It's, I, I have no idea if you guys were close going into it, but it just felt like it was the easiest pairing to put together. Can you tell us about what your guys' relationship uh, is like, how you guys ended up being partners and uh, how that partnership worked out? Yeah, so we met for the first time in college when I was at UCLA and he was, uh, I think it was still when he was at Long Beach State. And we played a couple times in some tournaments together. And, um, you know, he's just, he's just a great dude. And I think anybody that sees him from afar and definitely gets to know him in person, he's one of the best guys out there. He's extremely genuine. He's very, very intelligent. And he's a great player. So being able to play my matches with him was awesome. Um, we played a uh, practice round together and we got along really well and we're friends going in, but are definitely much better friends now after having gone through that. And we played, you know, really well together. And I think I definitely enjoyed my time very much competing with him on the golf course and having him on my team. What's it like adjusting to playing alternate shot? How much, when was the last time you played alternate shot um, and kind of how does that affect rhythm wise and what's something that, you know, viewers at home maybe don't appreciate about the challenges that come with that format? Alternate shot is, is just, again, it's so different than what we do. Not only is it match play, but now you're not even hitting all the shots. And I think something that's really important when you're playing with a partner is you have it in your head kind of that, Oh, if I put my guy in a bad position, he's going to be pissed at me or like it's even worse that I put him in this bad position because now I'm not the person to get, get us out of it. He has to get out of it. And so putting that aside and realizing that both of you are going to hit bad shots and uh, kind of not having to deal with that, that extra part of it is huge. Fortunately, we're, we're good friends enough and we respect each other enough that we both know that's going to happen. And it's not, it's not a big deal. And we're able to go out and just focus on the task at hand. The challenges of the team events are not just the different formats, but like I said, like there are so many things going on that week and the pressure is so intense that, you know, I was so tired and everybody else was also tired and just drained physically and mentally. You know, we played best ball on Thursday we played alternate shot on Friday and we were down big time and 
we were fortunate enough, Xander and I, to win our match in the afternoon on Friday. And that kind of gave us a little momentum. And then JT rolled in that putt after I made one on 18. And so now we feel like we're back in it a little bit. And then it's really cold and, and, and windy and rainy on Saturday morning. And we are, you know, we got to play 36 holes and we're exhausted, or at least I'm exhausted. And now it's cold and we're playing our best ball match and we ended up getting beat in the morning. And, you know, I'm, I'm so fried, like uh, bummed and upset from losing in the morning and, you know, uh, knowing that I'm going back out in the afternoon. And so I got like the story is basically, or at least from my perspective, you know, Tiger and Rob, his manager, who's assistant cap, another assistant captain that week, pick, pick me up after we lose our best ball match in the morning. And I'm like, uh, talking with the guys and I'm like, all right, so me and Xander going out in the afternoon. He's like, yeah, you guys are going out again. I'm like, okay, great. Um, and he goes, I go, so who, you know, who else is going out and play? And he lists the, t- lists the rest of the teams that are going out. And I go, what, what are you talking about? Why aren't you playing? You know, I'm thinking if you had been watching Tiger was playing the best of anybody on our team. And so we're down still and it's going into Saturday afternoon, the fourth session. And I'm thinking Tiger for sure is going to play. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not playing. I can't go today. I'm like, what are you talking about? How can you not go? You know, like we need you. If we need anybody out there, we need the guy that's playing the best. He's like, you know, I'm not going. I'm like, all right, well, we're going to go, you know, get a point for us. Um, Xander and I, and I told Rob, I go, Rob, I am exhausted. I am going to go try and take a nap on the couch, rest my eyes for about 20 minutes, and then I'll go and get ready to play. But I need a favor from you. I need you to deliver me like some coffee on the 10th tee box because otherwise I just won't make it. And like I had never drank any type of caffeine or anything like that on the golf course before. <laughs> but uh, I kind of got ready to go. Uh, got into a good mental space and then we're walking down like the second hole and I tell Xander, Hey dude, like I'm right here with you and I'm going to be entirely focused, uh, as locked in as I possibly can, but I may not talk or I may not be super cheery, but that doesn't mean I'm like abandoning you. I'm totally here with you. I just need to conserve my energy. And, uh, we ended up being way down early in that match. I think we were like three down through the first four or five holes and then we were able to come back and play really, really, really good the last, you know, 15 holes or 13 holes. And that coffee on the 10th tee box, you know, carried me through all the way to the end. Unfortunately, we got a point. And, uh, you know, it was, it was very eerie that night, at least what I felt like. We were down, but it felt like we were in the driver's seat. And if we just went out there and took care of business as usual, the next day we'd go out and, and uh, win uh, the President's Cup on Sunday. What's it like playing for, and I know you don't have a, a professional team event to compare it against, but your first team event, you get Tiger Woods as your captain. What's it like playing for Tiger? And what's your like go-to or favorite uh, Tiger story, I guess, from that week? First of all, he was great as a captain. And... He had, even when we were down and losing early, he had a sense of calmness about him that that's all right. We're just going to go to work every day and, and, you know, things will take care of themselves. There was no panic and there was no added stress from him as far as, you know, hey, guys, we need to get going or we need to do something different. And so that was that was really 
impressive how he went about it that way and uh, instilled a level of confidence and calmness in the rest of us. And just hanging out with him and being able to play for one of the greats of, uh, of all time, you know, was a cool experience. And getting to know him um, a little bit on a personal level and, and hearing the way he would go about the golf course or the mental approach um, in team meetings and stuff was amazing. Um, and definitely, I'd say my favorite part was, like I said, when I asked him if he was going in the afternoon, he was like, no, I'm not ready on Saturday afternoon. You know, my body can't go. He went from not being able to play on Saturday, but on Sunday morning when he was going out first, he was focused like nobody I'd ever seen a couple hours before his match, warming up in the gym beforehand. And he was like a different person. He looked like the Terminator. He was just going to go and win his match no matter what happened. And seeing that up close and personal and, and having a vested interest in it was was awesome. Wow. Well, what was your reaction when you saw like, seeing a course like Royal Melbourne? Do you see anything else similar to that in professional golf? And how uh, how do you see how that course you know suits uh, your, your playing style? Well, I loved it. I thought it was architecturally one of the best golf courses I've ever played or seen. It was very challenging and fun for us uh, as pros, and yet I could see a 10 handicap going there and loving it. A lot of the tee shots off the tee are downhill. There's a lot of short holes, uh, which for me are almost drivable, but for them would be driver wedge, even from the back tees. And there's a mix of all different types of holes, right to left holes, left to right holes, up and down. And it feels like a really firm Augusta National. And it was just, it was one of the best golf courses I've ever played. And I enjoyed it and loved it from the minute I got there and actually got to love it more as I learned the golf course uh, throughout the week. Well, speaking of Augusta National, uh, the 2019 Masters will, of, of course, be forever remembered for Tiger's win but it was almost, it, I, it takes a replay of watching it to really remember it, but it was almost the Patrick Cantley story. So what the hell changed between Friday and Saturday for you? You make the cut, the cut was plus three, you made it, uh, you shot two over the first two rounds, and you make Eagle on 15 on Sunday to take the lead at the Masters. What the hell happened in between Friday and Saturday? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think a little mindset switch, and then also just hitting some better shots uh, and get, building on that confidence. Um, Augusta is a place where I feel like good shots uh, are heavily rewarded. You can hit a lot close and you can even birdie some of the most difficult holes out there if you really hit great shots. But if you get a little off or you hit some untimely bad shots or average shots, the mistakes really compound, um, especially if you start leaving yourself above the hole or in the wrong spot where you can't get up and down. There are literally some impossible up and downs unless you make a 30 or 40 footer. And so I didn't do a good job at all on Thursday or Friday of managing my golf ball and distinguishing between the, this is a green light hole or this is a full red light. You need to make sure you leave it on this side of the hole regardless. Um, and I paid the price. And then on Thursday and Friday or on Saturday and Sunday, I hit the ball 
extremely well and was able to capitalize on all the holes that I should or most of the holes that I should and even birdie some of the more difficult holes like 11. I think I birdied on both Saturday and Sunday, which is like gaining a shot and a half just in one hole. You know, and, and it's kind of a product of Augusta. You can get on a roll there where it feels easy and play the par fives really well and make a bunch of birdies. And it can also, if you get the wrong wind or you hit a bad shot in the wrong spot, it can feel like one of the hardest golf courses in the world. Did it's just a, it's an amazing separator of talent. And you said it right there. Like you, you don't have to play that much better between Saturday and Friday to shoot a way, way better score. Right. Does that sound somewhat right? At least. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think unlike other golf courses, the scoring differences on some of the holes between like if you stripe it on some of the holes, even the hardest holes now become relatively birdieable holes. Like there's not almost a golf hole out there where you go, oh, this hole's impossible. But on the on the flip side, there's some really easy holes or or in your head, they seem like easy holes that can be totally butchered in a second. And so like you could get a day where you butcher a couple easy holes and all of a sudden the course feels impossible and you try and take advantage of a difficult hole and then you make a mistake there. And now you're shooting, you know, definitely over par. And so it just, there's such a contrast between the hard holes and the easy holes. And you've got to do a good job of taking what the golf course gives you every day. Yeah, I think that the third hole is about the best example of that. Like, if you just look at everyone's scores, you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense that he that he birdied number three. And also, yeah, I mean, that makes sense that you would bogey number three because you can be wrong. If you're two yards off your number onto like that left pin, you're probably making five. But you, if you hit that number exactly, you're probably making three. The line between birdie and bogey at Augusta seems to be drawn very closely. Yeah, and changes when they change the hole location. Yep. Exactly. So like if they put that pin back right on three, all of a sudden it's a full green light. You know, you're not worried about making bogey to the back right hole location because, you know, now all of a sudden most of your putts are going to be relatively flattish. But you could make a bogey just by hitting a bad tee shot to that front left. And, you know, you could even make a good bogey. You could even make a bogey where you have to get up and down to that front left hole location because it's so inaccessible from so many different areas, especially if you're not in the middle of the fairway about a, you know, anywhere from 100 to 130 yards away. So when did it, did it enter your mind that you could potentially win the Masters? At what point? Would, was it before Sunday? Was it at some point during the round Sunday? When was that? Yeah, I think on, on Sunday, uh, you know, playing well on the front nine, I realized I would have a chance, but I still realized that I needed to make a lot of birdies. Um, and I even felt like that, I even felt like that after 15 a little bit, I realized that like my work wasn't done because all those guys are behind me and they have the birdie holes to be played. So I still realized I needed to probably play the last three holes in one under to have a chance. I can't remember if Tiger was at, I think he finished maybe at 13 or 14. He bogeyed 18 to finish 13. Yeah. Right. So I still would have, you know, needed at least one or two, you know, maybe makes par if I make, if, you know, if if he needs to make a par on 18. So I knew my work wasn't done, but I definitely realized that if I played those last three holes, I'd have a decent chance. Um, and that was a, 
a far different feeling than how I felt on Friday evening. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I've got a, f- a couple uh, fun grab bag ones here to ask you before we let you go. Uh, a, a colleague, a peer of yours, if you will, wanted me to ask at last year's uh, BMW, there was someone in particular that made a made a birdie putt. You guys are paired together, makes a birdie putt and the camera cuts to you saying what appears to be some kind of expletive. Uh, can you do you guys ever talk about that? Can you take us to what the do, and do you know what I'm referencing? can't think of it it's exactly you and jt are going head to head or he's you know you, you're you're kind of trying to chase him down he drains a birdie putt and it cuts to you and it just there was a, there was a lot of that that week <laughs> by the way so like picking out one particular moment wasn't exactly uh, isn't exactly easy uh, but i'm sure something like this could have happened well it's uh, it, the camera cuts to you and it looks like it just kind of looks like you just mutter to yourself like fucking hey man like this guy which i i love that i thought that was just like you know at times i know you guys are buddies but at times it's like you know like a lot of high-fiving and fist bumping out there and stuff but it's kind of like i enjoyed seeing you guys just getting into like competing against each other and i was i was curious if you guys said that he he told he had mentioned that to me that maybe you guys had talked about that or referenced that but it doesn't sound like it's top of mind for you uh yeah, I mean, he was unconscious that week. Uh, I played really well, and I tried to give him as much of a fight as I could on Sunday. And I played well on Sunday. I feel like I played well every day. But he uh, played better, and he played absolutely incredible that week. And I tried to get it. I tried to give myself as much of a chance as I could, but I just I couldn't keep up. I couldn't make enough birdies. Um, but there, you know, JT's great player and a really good friend of mine. And so, uh, it is, it is though, when you're competing like that, you know, him being your friend means basically nothing, you know, you're just, you're just out there, uh, trying to win. Um, and you know, he can be your friend, you know, next week when he's not beating you by a couple. And one thing that happened, I, th- I think it was this year. I'm kind of lot, this quarantine's kind of made me lose track of what time was, but you're on the 18th, I think the 18th tee at Kapalua. And you had some audio that got caught by the microphones right there. Uh, what was the react? What, can you take us to what what you were referencing? What you, what was being said, and and what the reaction was like to that? Yeah, it was on seventeen, and we were on the tee box for you know a long time, and it had been raining, and uh, we were like kind of like in a hold, and uh, no one was around. And I don't even think like I had my ball teed up at the time. And they were talking about how the rain that we were having, this was John Rahm and his caddy, was similar to uh, how it was in the British Open on Sunday. And the British Open on Sunday last year at Portrush was, it was pouring. Uh, I had already finished my round because I was near the, the back, the back side of the field, like 40th or 50th. But the leaders played in serious, serious rain. And it was similar to that, just a full-on downpour. And so they were saying how it was during one of the times when it was, um, you know, really pouring, one of the rules officials came up to them and said, like, hey, guys, like, you guys need to keep playing. Like, you can't hold for this. It's just it's just some rain. And I was kind of, I was, like, adding to his story as he was telling it, like, yeah, that rules official's probably been waiting his whole life to like tell some of these spoiled brat tour pros to like hurry up and play. And that was his moment, like in the British open on Sunday. And he was going to be like pumped to get up in your ear and be like, Hey guys, get going. Um, and so I had no idea that, you know, that was going to be obviously on camera. Um, 
are on camera and, and, and mic'd up, but that's my fault. Like I got to be better about that. But yeah, I mean, it made for a funny moment. And then after all that rain and, and waiting there forever and it being a long day, Kapalua is like, feels like a walk that's entirely uphill. And, you know, with all the rain and the winds, I was just, you know, I was kind of making a joke to my caddy before I hit my tee shot. Like, man, we got to go get a drink after this. Like we need a, we, you're going to need a Mai Tai after carrying this bag up this mountain all day. And the 17th hole of that fairway is, you know, 70 yards wide. So it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, hitting tee shots at Hilton Head. You feel like you're just up there swinging as hard as you can to try and get that it, it, as far down there as possible. So uh, that's that's kind of the, the story. Well, isn't the the best part of the bit about the Mai Tai too is that you don't even drink? Is that did I hear that right? I don't really drink during tournament week. So yeah, my caddy, <laughs> I told him, you know, we got two more holes and we can go get a Mai Tai Revy. And he said, I'll have a Mai Tai. You can have a one. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and that's just the kind of relationship we have. He's a great dude. Great stuff. Um, and he's been on my bag since I since I came back. So the last like three years. Sweet. All right, Patrick, we're going to let you go, man. I really appreciate you taking an hour plus with us, taking us through your career and everything. I think uh, you know a lot of people watch you on TV and maybe don't know the full story, and I feel like I learned a, a ton just like getting ready for this as well. So really appreciate the time, and best of luck with the quarantine and uh, with the remainder of the season. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Honey, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect any 